a Lifetime Original Podcast. On September 11th, 1907, Mary Ann Vanderbilt takes the stand in a trial that would decide the future of her and her husband's fortune. The question before the court is simple. What is a kiss? Well, what do you mean? A kiss is a kiss. Lip on lip action. Oh, Quinn, 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 you've been married far too long. It's much more complicated than that. Take it from me. Personally, I've received two kisses on the cheek in the past week, so I'm basically an expert. And so is Marianne. See, a witness accused her of cheating on her husband with another man. She was seen kissing him. Whoa. And it matters what kind of kiss? Duh. Quinn, you're just like the all-male jury. You don't understand the intricacies of love, so I'll break it down for you like Mary did for them. A kiss is not just a kiss. There's a pinch kiss, the amateur kiss, the affinity kiss, and my favorite, the nether soul kiss. Oh, right. Yeah, no, I learned about these in college. Sarah Lawrence has a class on kissery? You betcha. (laughs) You know, at Indiana, it was more of an immersive experience, I'd say. And then, of course, there's the kiss Marianne gives to this other guy, the spiritualistic kiss. It's just a peck on the cheek from one psychic to her customer. Oh, so this was transactional. I mean, this was a business kiss. That doesn't sound like cheating. And I I gotta say, Carrie, you sort of uh, went through that she's a psychic business rather quickly. That seems pretty pertinent here. Oh, she's a psychic, all right. But she's not just any psychic. She's the Lady Bishop of the Brooklyn Banshees Church. And she did a lot more than just kissing. I'm Quinlan Posner. And I'm Carrie Ipema. And this is Crime of a Lifetime. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Marianne Vanderbilt did not start out as heir to the Vanderbilt Railroad fortune. She actually had to spend years scamming her way up the ranks of society before she even came close to marrying a guy with that much loot. In the 1880s, Marianne is actually in Rhode Island. She's 18 years old, and she's working in a rich family's house. Now, this family isn't Vanderrich-built, Vanderbilt-rich, but they're rich enough where they've got servants. And her name isn't Marianne Vanderbilt at this time, obviously. Her name is Marianne Scannell. She spends her days cleaning milk cans on the farm. She sweeps. She's helping take care of her boss, the Kenyans. But Marianne, she doesn't care much about this work. I mean, who would? It's cleaning milk cans. As one author put it, all she cares about is boys and stuff. (laughs) I gotta say, me too, Mary. I love boys, but way more than boys. I love stuff. Stuff is, like, my favorite. Yeah, but really, when you get the combo together, boys and stuff, it's like magic. It's amazing. 
Well, I gotta give it to Mary. She spends all her time thinking of ways to get boys and stuff, and she's got this laser focus that really pays off. This family that Marianne works for, the Kenyans, they're really into spiritualism, which is not so much the woo-woo, healing, crystals, meditation, jade, egg angle. We're talking ghosts. The 1800s is a hotbed for good old-fashioned seances. There's mediums, there's psychics, they're popping up all over the country. And would you believe it? Their beliefs vary from spiritualist to spiritualist. It's like there isn't a spiritualist hierarchy determining the rules that all these spiritualists follow. They believe in all sorts of things. They believe in spirits and ectoplasm. And they believe they can talk to their dead relatives. And all of these beliefs are very much based in the Christian faith. It's like by having it based in Christianity, it makes it acceptable. Mm. Well, and part of that is because people, they really want to believe in ghosts, especially in the wake of the Civil War, because there's thousands, if not millions of women who lost their husbands or worse, their sons on the battlefield. And it would just be really nice for them to be able to think that wasn't goodbye. And spiritualists are promising a connection and closure. So you really can't blame these folks for wanting to believe. And like we said before, the Kenyans, the family that Marianne works for, they're spiritualists. And Marianne sort of takes this in, clocks it, and realizes that she can use it to her own benefit. And so she starts expressing a connection to the other side. Mary Ann claims that the spirit of a Shanghai rooster has taken control of her. She's hearing spiritual rappings on the walls, and this rooster is possessing her, which is a really strong move for a rooster, I would say. I don't know a lot of roosters, but that's what I would say. Uh, In fact, she's described as going into like an uncontrollable rampage through the Kenyan's home under this rooster's influence. But lucky for the Kenyan's china cabinet and also lucky for Marianne, something very powerful cockadoodle don'ts him out of her body. I imagine this Shanghai rooster was just like, you know, a rooster that had some unfinished business and just wanted to like wake up a family. And then it was like, my work is done. You know, like that was the rooster's unfinished business. (laughs) Right. It was like, let's cause mayhem at this home. It's unfinished business. And then everyone's awake. My job is done. My job here is done. I can go towards the light. But apparently there was a more powerful spirit that removed the Shanghai rooster from Marianne's body. It was this Irishman spirit that had wandered all the way from Dublin to Rhode Island. It's a long trip for a spirit. That's across the Atlantic in the in the late 1800s. That's a that's a trek. Mm-hmm. Apparently, this Dublin ghost visits Marianne and is like really intent on this hot nephew of this local Catholic priest marrying Marianne. I just. I wish I was there to hear yeah. this pitch, you know. Ah, ah, the spiritual world demands that me, Marianne, marry Father Finnegan's hot nephew. No no questions asked, okay? Just do it or or else. Bad luck. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately for Marianne, the hot nephew doesn't take this demand from a spooky, drunk Irishman. So it's sort of a fruitless endeavor 
for this poor spirit. That's too bad because, yeah, he got those uh, those ghost hiking boots and a ghost ferry ticket or whatever. It sounded like a lot of work. To, I mean, traveling across uh, across the Atlantic as a living person, really tough. As a spirit, I don't think you have the safety of a boat. You probably glide. It's a long oh. trip. Ooh, very tricky stuff. But, you know, this is really only the beginning for Mary. She starts holding seances and fortune-telling sessions with folks in the community. And at one seance with her neighbors, Marianne gets visited by a spirit who requests that her neighbor give Marianne a white dress that she owns. So really, these spirits have a lot of different interests, and some are really interested in Marianne getting just a sweet new wardrobe. You know, they want her to look and feel her best and date hotties. They are clearly on her side. And they want her to look her best and date hotties. Yeah. These I God bless these spirits. You know, they're really looking out for Marianne. Yeah. So, you know, she stays. She stays for a year at the Kenyan farm and she spends most of her time learning how to be a more convincing psychic and obviously trying to get as much as she can out of that skill set. I'm just gonna say it. She's stealing. Yeah. She's stealing. It's attempted theft. It's theft. However, it's consensual. So it's this like dicey territory where she's convincing people to give things to her, but it's under false pretenses. She's stealing. But all good things must come to an end. And her antics turn out to be too much for the family she works for. Marianne is just causing so much trouble in town, or I guess like to put it another way, you could argue the town didn't want to listen to these spirits or give Marianne their dresses or their hot nephews. But seriously, she, she's essentially bilking her neighbors out of money and stuff. And trying Remember, for she, boys. She, she loves she's, stuff. And boys. She's, yeah. And she's trying for boys, but it's not working. She's just becoming what we would call today a con artist. And even though her neighbors are furious, she is learning the tricks of the trade and she's really excited to take these tricks elsewhere. So after Marianne leaves the Kenyan home, she takes her psychic abilities on the road. She's going on tour, y'all, to a town near you. If nobody in the Kenyan's neighborhood wants her, well, there's probably plenty more boys and stuff for her somewhere else. Yeah, over yonder. Um, and over the next few years, she sets her sights on men, most of them married, and she starts working her magic. Around 1882, Marianne moves into the Brow Boarding House in Providence, Rhode Island, and she takes quite a liking to the owner's son, Edwin Brow. He's young, he's successful, he's an artisan, he's making a cool 30 bucks a week, which you can buy a ton of stuff with. Boy included. But buzzkill, he's married to a woman named Josephine. But that doesn't stop our Marianne. No, no, no. The spirits working through her seem very invested on her getting exactly what she wants. What luck, what fortune, can you believe it? Hmm. And what she wants is a piece of that Edwin. Maybe she could get another soul kiss from him, I don't know. Suffice it to say, by the time Marianne leaves the boarding house, Edwin is divorced from his wife. He's lost his job, and Josephine, his now ex-wife, of course, hates Marianne. Well, that's no skin off Marianne's nose. She just moves to Taunton, Massachusetts and finds a new dude to pursue, George Pepper. He's a spicy man. He's got a spicy name. He is a buff copper engraver making $40 a week upgrade. Ooh. Yeah. 
Some might see George being married to a woman named Anne and having three kids with her as a problem, but not Mary. She probably takes it as a sign. She's like, look, he's already married to an Anne, and I am Mary Anne. He just has to add a single name. This is an easy transition for everyone, except for Anne, his wife. But it's a piece of cake for Marianne Scannell. At this point, she has several followers, so it's like legitimizing her in a lot of ways. And so the followers gather in her apartment, and she would tell them that the spirits demand George Pepper must be brought to her home or else. And they just keep badgering George till he comes to see Marianne. And once he's there, Marianne will give him a reading and tell him, you're so unhappy, you're so unhappy in your marriage. And she just repeats this over and over and over again, finding any excuse she can to get George to come to her house and remind him of his unhappiness. It's classic con artistry. If you repeat a lie enough times, eventually people will start to believe it. So Marianne just keeps telling George how unhappy he is and Over and over again, she tells him this and how good she would be for him instead until George finally just snaps. He divorces his wife and moves in with Marianne. But as soon as she gets George, she's bored of him. It's savage. The whole thing eventually leads to George being convicted of bigamy, being married to two people at the same time. But by then, Marianne She's pieced out. She's long gone. But she's left with a little something, a little uh, remembrance, which is George's name. Mary Ann Scannell is no more. She's leveling up to a new heights of con artistry, and she's becoming Reverend May S. Pepper. I don't know where you get um, licensed to reverend or whatever, but it doesn't strike me as something she's gone out and done. And suddenly here we are. And she's like, you know what? Call me Reverend Pepper. No relation to Sergeant Pepper. Listen, I don't I I love you know what? She's an independent woman. She is a go getter. No certification is going to stand in her way. No, no, no. She's just going to take the moniker that she's a reverend. Love that for her. She's just she's so ballsy. She has a crush on somebody and goes up to him and says, first of all, let me introduce myself. I'm your therapist. Also, my first piece of advice is date me. And then his whole life falls apart and she's gone, presumably sending him like an invoice for services rendered. I mean, it's wild. And then to take his name on top of it all, that feels really cruel, actually. The meanness also comes from the fact that she fought so hard for him and told him, gaslit him to thinking he is unhappy, convincing him that he is unhappy and he must leave his wife to be with her and his kids and then she takes his name and leaves him. It's just, it, it, that's the cruelness of it. She's like, no, I'll keep the parts I want, which is just your name. Aren't you curious if those men went back to their wives after she left and were like, psych. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> like, I'm back. <laughs> Ooh. I mean, the one guy gets charged with bigamy. So technically he wasn't even divorced in the first place. So she, Mary and May, May S, whoever it is, she skedaddles. And then Anne is there being like, I guess I'm still married to this guy. And listen, it's the late 1800s. Women didn't have a ton of rights. By 1904, Marianne Scannell, a.k.a. Reverend May S. Pepper, she's 37 years old, and she is the premier spiritualist of New York City. 
to put it another way, she is the premier con woman of New York City. She gives sermons at the Church of the Fraternity of Soul Communion. She hosts public seances in a cathedral in Brooklyn. And guests there are encouraged to bring these letters in sealed envelopes meant for their dead loved ones. And Reverend Mae Pepper, she'll answer them on command and then charge you for it. As the Brooklyn Daily Eagle put it, Miss Pepper connects the dead and the living with neatness and dispatch. She has this very powerful baritone voice and she sermonizes to her followers that are in the hundreds. You know, really not dissimilar to this podcast. She has uh, a little help from an indigenous spirit named Little Bright Eyes. This is kind of um, a common trope that psychics used in the 1800s and the early 1900s. It's very tone deaf. It's very exploitative, obviously, but for her followers, it adds uh, mystique, I guess, to her act. So Little Bright Eyes is her connection to the spirit world. Through her, she can talk to anyone, and she's not cheap. Little Bright Eyes requires checks to be written out to her, and apparently this spirit, Little Bright Eyes, actually cashes those checks, which frankly is a remarkable feat, if you ask me. While we're talking about all of those who believe her and how popular she was and all these followers that she has, I do think it's worth noting that she does have a fair amount of skeptics at this time. When she would be performing these seances or sermons, they would shout out at her from the crowd heckling her. It was like she was a comic in a late night club. And Reverend Pepper was not afraid to confront these skeptics, which gave her so much more credence that she was right. Yeah, in one case, a photographer was like calling bullshit on the little bright eye shtick and Reverend Pepper claps back and tells him, in fact, you took a picture of little bright eyes. And she describes her as this little Native American girl. And the man's like, I don't know what you're talking about. But then he shows up again at a later service and he tells Reverend Pepper, this is crazy, but you were right. I went home and I found this photo you talked about that I had taken, and it was of a little Native American girl exactly as you had described. Wait, so is she a psychic? Well, he could have been a plant, or he could have been somebody that um, failed to notice that this was a very easy guess for her to make, that this would be someone that he would have taken a picture of, and she's just calling it out, and if he doesn't find it, oh well, but if he does, he's going to be converted and in front of all these people. It's going to really be a show. Yeah. She's good. She's good. She does her homework, and she does it well. Now, some of the people in her act are plants, and others are guests who Reverend has done a lot of research on. So it's this carefully orchestrated act of deceit where she is calling on people who are plants who can sort of get excited and invigorate the crowd and also she's able to say information about these other people there and they seemingly don't realize that she already knows all this information on them around 1905 reverend may s pepper starts to see a new face at her spiritual meetings really a a new mark is what she sees he's an elderly man in his 60s which is well above that 45-year life expectancy we're dealing with at this time. And his name is Edward Ward Vanderbilt. I can't say it. Edward Ward, but really Edward Ward. Edward Ward Vanderbilt. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
And uh, yeah, I mean those Vanderbilts, the tycoons, the uh, robber barons, the richest of the rich, the Vanderbilts. So like imagine this is like the great, 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 great something or other of Anderson Cooper. Hmm. So Edward Ward is in a pretty bad place emotionally. This woman, his wife, who he loved and he was married to for nearly all of his life, she's recently died and he's riddled with grief. And he's always been a little spiritual. He's always had that in him. He's never been one to participate in a seance until now. He comes to Reverend Pepper hoping to rekindle a connection with his late wife, Kezia. And Reverend Pepper is the premier medium of all of New York City. So that's where he's going. So, yeah, she knows a fat wallet when she sees one. And she starts writing letters. Oh, I'm sorry. Little Bright Eyes starts writing letters through her. She doesn't remember writing anything. Uh, The spirit possesses her, grabs a little pen, and sends us some messages from the other side. And the handwriting is really ugly and messy, and the grammar's weird and off. It is nothing like what his wife, Kezia, would have written. But when she delivers the letters to Edward Ward, he just buys it, hook, line, and sinker. Something about these letters feels mystical to him. And they also reference things that only people in his family would know. And they are signed Mama, which was his pet name for Kezia. I mean, keep in mind, this man is grieving his wife. And if there's any chance that he could communicate with her, I mean, he's going to take it. And that's what these letters offer him. But sometimes the letters would be written directly from Little Bright Eyes, who would encourage Edward Word to do something nice for this medium who reconnected him with his wife. And so he starts buying Reverend Pepper, you guessed it, stuff. He buys her two houses, actually, in New York. So it's not just like little stuff, it's big stuff. (laughs) Yeah, and... Reverend Pepper knows that she has hit it big time with this Vanderbilt, so she's going to take things even further. She gives him a picture of Little Bright Eyes, probably the one that uh, the photographer gave her, and Edward Ward gets it refurbished and replicated and creates a shrine for this photo at his house. And he later adds a photo of the Reverend, too. And then, of course, one of the rooster. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) No, no, no. But the drunk Irish guy does make a cameo. He's got to. He's absolutely got to. This wall's getting full. (laughs) Edward Ward buys candy for Little Bright Eyes, which makes you wonder, where did he think the candy was going? I don't know. He also makes out checks to Little Bright Eyes, which again, how does a spirit open a bank account, let alone cash a check? But Edward Ward is not interested in these minor details. He doesn't care. He's communicating with his wife. He is a believer. By June 1st, 1907, Edward Ward Vanderbilt is so taken by Reverend Pepper that he marries her. They get hitched. He changes his will to make her the heir to $10,000 and two of his Long Island farms. He also makes her the executor of his estate. Oh, wait, wouldn't she be the, we learned that word, executrix? Mm. We add that to her moniker. Add that yes. to Reverend Executrix May right. Pepper. Yeah, now she's no longer Reverend May S. Pepper. She's really 
she's become her final form, which is Executrix, the Reverend Marion Scannell Pepper Vanderbilt. She reaches Nirvana. <laughs> this is interesting because I feel like um, we've talked about this, but like I do think that people that read fortunes and read tarot and this kind of thing, it's not all just con artistry it's a thing that if you're a person that really believes in that and then you're offering it as a service and somebody comes to you that really believes in it I don't think that there's a victim there I think it can be like an honest transactional thing um, that people take very seriously so but in this case it's not with good intention and she's not I don't think she believes it I mean we don't know we don't have we can't have her on to chat about it but I really don't think Marianne believes in this. I think she saw an opening, an opportunity, and she took it. And it, it what makes me so sad, too, is like we've all been in positions of grief. I mean, I know I have. You know, losing someone is so hard, um, and it takes a really long time. And so it'd be one thing if she believed that she was communicating and wanting to help Edward Word, but the but the thing is, is I don't think she does. And this man is just trying to communicate with his true love. And she's lying and then taking money from him, taking his homes. She's marrying him. It's just like taking advantage of vulnerable people. There's like nothing worse than that, truly. There's nothing worse than that. It's just cold-blooded greed. It is manipulation. And the most insidious thing about this crime is that it's so hard to even punish her, right? It's so hard because the people who she's getting, her marks, believe in her so much. And the same people that she's scamming are going to defend her at the end of the day. Which really adds insult to injury because they want this so badly that they're going to say it's happening, which is, that's the thing. You say to yourself, she's taking advantage of someone that's rich. He has enough money that, you know, it's not going to hurt him to give her a farm or two or a, a small fortune. He's, you know, going to be rich his whole life. But it's not about the money or the stuff. It's about the emotional hijacking mm-hmm. that's going on here. And it's, it's as you said, this person is vulnerable. They're, it, it's their darkest point. And yeah. for you to come after them during that time and about that thing that hurts the most is terrible. It's really bad. Of course. Well, luckily, we're about to get to uh, a point where Marianne Scannell's antics are finally all going to catch up with her. It's about time. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. 
Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. As you can imagine, the Vanderbilts, the loved ones of Edward Ward, are not too pleased at this new member of their family. I mean, they're pretty... P.O.'d. They're pretty pissed. Like, could you imagine the dinner where he brings this woman around and is like, hey, everyone, meet Reverend May S. Pepper. She's letting me talk to Kezia. Is everybody so thrilled? Oh, by the way, you might not be well acquainted. There's also little bright eyes. You know what? Do you have any questions you want to ask her? Don't forget to set a spot at the table for her as well. <laughs> like, I can't even imagine. His brother and sister are like shocked at how gullible their brother is. But the angriest of all of them is his daughter, Minerva Vanderbilt. Yes. Within 10 days of Edward Ward marrying Marianne, Minerva goes to court and she applies to have her father's will nullified. She says, my dad is mentally weak. Marianne is the one controlling him and she is a fraud and a liar. And she shows the judge these letters from Little Bright Eyes to prove it. In several letters, Little Bright Eyes writes that Edward Ward should really be giving Marianne gifts for all the services she's performing for him. So selfless, seeing as Marianne is the one writing these. It's the very least he could do, really. The fact that Edward Ward doesn't notice that a ghost is scamming him just goes to show how desperate he is to believe he is speaking to his dead wife. And Marianne is just an opportunistic con artist. Minerva sees that to her credit. She's not going to let this con woman steal a cent of her inheritance. So she's going to get in her way as much as she can because she stands to inherit more than $100,000 in property, which is millions in today's money. So Minerva goes to this judge and says, I have been left penniless because of this marriage, and I want the court to assemble something that they called a lunacy commission to decide whether or not her dad is mentally fit to write a new will. And based on the evidence of this hearing, the judge rules in Minerva's favor. Marianne, you are going to have to fight. Let's see what you've got. On August 26th, 1907, the Lunacy Commission, which is frankly what I call therapy every week, is held at the Kings County Courthouse in Manhattan. There's a lawyer, a banker, a physician, and a jury of 15, and these are all men, okay? And all of these guys will judge Edward Ward Vanderbilt's sanity. But really, this commission is here to judge whether Reverend Mary Ann Scannell Pepper Vanderbilt is the real deal or not. Or I would actually contest that they're just there to try to determine if Edward really truly believes her. And Edward is the first person to take the stand. He looks older than he is. He's 66, but he's really wrinkly. He's really frail, but he's, you know, he's well-dressed and dignified. He's a Vanderbilt. As he sees it, this whole thing, this whole trial is just a temper tantrum by Minerva, his daughter. She was always a willful child, and here she is at it again, being disobedient. And he truly believes in this spiritualism. He believes that Marianne can speak to the dead, specifically his wife, and that little bright eyes is her connection to the other side. 
And so what if he gives a few houses to Marianne for her services? It's all worth it to him because he's being reconnected to Kezia. Marianne is good and pure in his eyes. If you are trying to convince people that you're mentally fit, I'm really not sure that this is the best way to do that. Minerva's lawyers have a star witness in their back pocket, someone who is ready to out Marianne Scandal for the fraud that she is. And she takes the stand, dressed in a blue gown and a blue hat with a big veil. Minerva's lawyer insists that she not be identified, earning her the nickname, The Woman in Blue. The Woman in Blue speaks in hushed tones barely audible to the commission or the lawyers. She doesn't want to be there, but she knows for a fact that Marianne is a fraud. She worked with Marianne a few years back when The Woman in Blue was a follower of Reverend Pepper of Marianne. This woman attended meetings and seances held in Boston and Lake Pleasant. And she claims Marianne said and did things that go directly against the beliefs she was preaching. She said Marianne didn't believe in the Bible and was even annoyed that she had to read it to pull off some of her scams. She also saw Marianne drink whiskey and regularly smooch folks. She saw her kiss a man named Mr. Allen. On one occasion, she heard Marianne joke about marrying old fools for their money, and she even named Edward Vanderbilt as one of those fools. She lays out a damning tale that makes Marianne look like a gold digger. And Edward is not going to stand for this. He doesn't believe a single word of it. And his lawyer insists that the woman identify herself on the stand. If she's going to slander Marianne, then at least she should do it on the record and identify herself. And at least one member of the jury agrees that she really, she should at least remove her veil. And the judge declares this woman in blue, she has to state her name for the court. And again, she refuses. And then the judge threatens to hold her in contempt of court. So finally, she takes off the veil and says her name, Carolyn Darnell. <gasps> Who is that? <laughs> no clue. No clue. No. She's just a former follower of Reverend Pepper, apparently. It's, it's frankly, it's pretty anticlimactic reveal. It's... It's got to be a little embarrassing for Caroline, really. Who? <laughs> Wait, what was her name? What was her name? <laughs> I can't think of it. What was it? After days of testimony from psychologists, doctors, and at least one witness for Edward, who apparently was paid $100 to testify in his defense, it all comes down to Mrs. The Reverend Marianne Scandal Pepper Vanderbilt, the Lady Bishop of Brooklyn Banshees, to take the stand. That's a mouthful. Yeah, I hope they had to say her name every time they asked her a question. <laughs> do it, do it. Do, ask a question using their full name, Quinn, do it. Well, let me hear from you, Miss The Reverend Marianne Scandal Pepper Vanderbilt, the Lady Bishop of Brooklyn of Banshees. <laughs> <laughs> I really love that. Yeah, other than it being exhausting, the court is really highly anticipating her testimony, and the newspapers are waiting for this juicy scoop, and the commission is eager to see this psychic put to the test. So when Marianne takes the stand, Edward gives her a reassuring nod. He's like, hey, kid, you're going to do great up there. Knock it out of the park. Minerva Vanderbilt's lawyer starts asking her questions about her promiscuity. 
he doesn't beat around the bush. He accuses Marianne of kissing other men. He points back to the testimony of the woman in blue, accusing her of kissing a guy named Mr. Allen. Tim Allen. Isn't that true? <laughs> the Santa Claus Santa himself. Claus? <laughs> I saw Mary kissing Santa Claus. Marianne just smiles from her seat in the witness box and says, probably. In fact, she goes even further. She says she's kissed Mr. Allen a hundred times, but they were spiritualist kisses, not earthly ones. Certainly not promiscuous. It's just a peck on the cheek. I think the lawyer is a bit dumbstruck at this moment because I think he imagined it to be a gotcha moment for her. And not only does she totally sort of like take that energy and turn it into her own, she's like, yeah, I did. What of it? Also, let me add some more information. Like, here's all these different kinds of kissing. And as a spiritual expert, she knows them all. Yeah, there's the uh, the pinch kiss for children's cheeks. The germ-bearing caress. And frankly, with kids, there's plenty of germs to go around. Yeah. There's the amateur kiss, which is clumsy, you know, and sometimes lands on the nose or the chin and... Frankly, I'm very familiar with this one. Well, then there's the affinity kiss, a soulful, lingering, wet embrace. I hated saying that. Ugh. It's described as not unlike watering a horse, and that's what? really gross. I mean, if somebody kissed me like they were watering a horse, I would be pretty sicked out. <laughs> Wait, watering a horse? You just have, like, is your mouth the trough? Like, I'm oh, so confused. I think there are carrots involved. (laughs) What's interesting about the affinity kiss is you need an apple or a carrot to do so. (laughs) God, the affinity kiss. Okay, but my favorite, I have to say, is the nether soul kiss. The nether soul kiss is specific. It is a two to four minute silent locking of the lips. So... I think from what I can surmise is that you're just like in the kissing position, locked lips, just still breathing heavily on the person for two to four minutes. It's a very, very close quarters staring contest is what I'm getting. (laughs) You would go eyes open. I mean, it doesn't say anything about the eyes. I would assume you carry. Of course I would go eyes open. Wouldn't you? You're not much of a lover if you don't really go for it with this nether of soul. Do you Uh, breathe out of your nose or mouth, though? (laughs) I can't take any more questions about this kissing. Um, But, you know, Marianne could. She just wanted to talk about this for hours. She's really redirecting the energy of this whole trial. Um, I don't think that the Lunacy Commission is gaining much insight here, which is all really actually to her benefit. So eventually, you knew this was coming. Minerva's lawyers insist that Marianne conjure a spirit, right? I mean, she should be able to do so. Where's little bright eyes? I mean, I want to see the Shanghai rooster. At the very least, the drunk Irishman. Come on, Marianne, do your thing. No, no, she's not going to do her thing. Marianne crosses her arms and she's like, oh boy, you guys don't know anything about spirits, do ya? Minerva, listen here. I, I cannot just uh, conjure up spirits at will. Obviously, also... I happen to go unconscious when Little Bright Eyes comes to me. Sure, the letters from Edward's wife are written in my handwriting, but 
That's because Little Bright Eyes is writing them through me. I don't remember a thing. As to what conjures Little Bright Eyes, Marianne tells the jury, hell if I know. Maybe it's a church choir. And unless you got like a quartet lying around, show's over, folks. After she steps off the stand, a crowd of her followers, her believers, embrace her. And then the jury leaves to deliberate on the sanity of her husband and the future of her inheritance. At 9.03 p.m. on September 11th, 1907, the jury returns to the court and they are deadlocked. All this business of the occult, they've had a hard time accepting that a sane man could believe it. But they're really not sure. So the judge sends them back to deliberate more. They show up again at 10.10 p.m. And they're like, look, we just worked on this for another hour and seven minutes. We are still unable to agree. Um, we're, we're really tied. We're tied up in the intricacies of the occult. Um, plenty of people believe in this stuff. None of them are brought up on charges of insanity. The judge is like, you know what, guys? It it might take longer than an hour seven. So <laughs> he, he sends them back to talk together till they can come to a verdict. At nine o'clock the next morning, the jury comes out of lockup, which feels incredibly aggressive for a jury deliberation. But I guess the judge locked him up after those 67 minutes. They finally have come to an agreement. They've decided on a vote of 3 to 12, they find Edward Ward Vanderbilt mentally unfit. It's sort of hard to celebrate this as a victory because do we really want Edward to be declared mentally unfit? But at the same time, that means that Marianne won't be able to get her hands on the family fortune. So, you know, I can say it's a win in that respect, but it, it doesn't feel like a win for Edward. As for Minerva Vanderbilt, it's hard to feel good for her. She seemed like a little bit of a brat, honestly. And now that she's won, she debates whether she wants to seek the annulment of her father's marriage to Marianne. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You got what you wanted. Settle down. Get a life. You're rich now. Go buy yourself some stuff. And go get yourself some boys. But obviously, Edward isn't going to let this stand he immediately files an appeal and he's granted another trial or I guess another lunacy commission. Not sure you want two lunacy commissions on your record, but if you have a punch card, I don't know, you're like three away from a lunacy party perhaps, <laughs> which actually sounds really fun. <laughs> Jump forward a year and Edward Vanderbilt is back before a new lunacy commission. And this time he wins? Well, he is, he's declared mentally fit, meaning that the will that he wrote giving Marianne power over his estate will be upheld. And so in a way, her psychic powers are legitimized. Again, it's hard to feel bad for Minerva. She's lost this case, but I think she really made the bet on this one. The only person I feel for is Edward. Sure, he's won, but really he's lost. His relationship with his daughter can't be good after this, and he's been duped, and now he's spending money on proving that he isn't being duped. Like, sure, he might have won the case, but there's a no, lot the of winner, loss. Yeah, yeah. the winner here is Marianne, for sure. Um, please say her full name, Quinn. Uh, the winner here is Miss the Reverend Marianne Scannell Pepper Vanderbilt, Lady Bishop of the Brooklyn Banshees, and High Priestess of all Ghosties, looking to make the mosties. <laughs> 
Is her name getting longer? I, I feel like a spirit is speaking through me. Little Bright Eyes, is, is that you? <laughs> She's more than a decade younger than her officially mentally fit husband. So it's just a matter of time before she gets to rake in that sweet, sweet Vanderbilt fortune. Hold up. A year passes. Two years pass. Five. <gasps> ten years. And Edward is still alive. Jesus, this guy's nearly 77 years old in a time when people died before the age of 45, frequently. We don't know what his and Marianne's relationship's like, but they do stay together. And I'm sure Marianne has to be thinking at this point that she's running out of time in her life to spend this money. What is this guy, a vampire? But she doesn't have to think that for very long because one year later, in 1919, Marianne dies. Edward outlives her by seven years. He dies in 1926. So Minerva, after all of this fighting, she gets her inheritance after all. But Marianne Scannell's legacy lives on in the spiritualist movement, which is still very much alive. You know, look no further than uh, healing crystals, meditation, astrology, tarot cards. You know, I could go on and on. But no amount of alleged psychic abilities could keep death away from Marianne's doorstep. You'd think maybe like little bright eyes would have like given her a warning or something. Nope. <laughs> you know, it's interesting because I feel like a lot of the time when we outline some of these stories about con artists or like people doing a heist or a robbery, there is some part of us that's like, this is mm-hmm. fun. Like, this is like, or that like we're a little bit on their side maybe because, or we want to see them succeed. There's some part of us that's like, yeah, what would it look like if this went well for you? And you just don't feel that with this person, with Marianne I felt at all. felt none of that with Marianne. And it's because she takes advantage of those in grief. Like that mm-hmm. to me is as simple as like, it's punching down in the most like disgusting way. Yeah, she's a meanie. She's an opportunist. And I feel like she got her just (laughs) desserts by having to die this man's wife, you know? Totally. I'm definitely not a fan of her, you know? Definitely not. But not to mention, like, we, we focus a lot on Edward in this, but let's not forget of the couples that she left, like, the destruction of relationships she left in her wake. Like, my God, the amount of relationships she's broke up. She's like... Like, is she like the Pete Davidson of the early 1900s? I don't know. It's like every person she meets that she thinks is cute is like, huh, I can convince you you're unhappy. You can leave your partner, leave your children, shake up your life, and then I'll hang out with you for a month and then I'll peace out. Did I ever tell you that when I was playing a psychic in a immersive theater show, Mm. I sat in front of like a real psychic shop. We rented it and there was a real psychic that lived there. um, Whatever you take real psychic to mean. And someone who collects money for psychic readings. Yes. This older woman. And um, she, I I would sit in the window though, because it was the audience that was coming and I was giving them like a piece of information for a show, but people would come, they'd see me in the window and they'd knock and they'd actually want a reading. And I remember that I would go back and get the woman that was a psychic and she kept being like, you can do it. And I was like, no, 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 thank you. Not me, not me. She kept trying to convince me to like just do her job for her and then give the money to her and just pretend to be a psychic. So any sort of um, 
any sort of thought that I had in my head that she was legitimate was uh, completely destroyed. <laughs> I was I was walking around in New York. I was remember I was wearing a white dress and I was walking around and this woman stopped me in the middle of the street and she was like, "Hi, hi. Um, you have like a very interesting aura. I'm a psychic and I." love to give you a reading and she like gave me her card and the way she engaged me was so like she fostered this immediate connection in a way and I'm a skeptic for sure and so the but like there was something but I called her the next day but I called her the next day and I was like tell (laughs) me my life ton of money (laughs) gave her all my money Um, I'm currently in debt to her she's in the other room listening to every word that I'm saying somebody called the lunacy commission I'm not looking for a psychic. I'm looking for someone to nether soul kiss. Just two to four minutes. Lock lips, eyes open, breathing heavily. (laughs) I think that's what we're all looking for. That and stuff. Catch more gripping stories pulled straight from the headlines with all new original series and movies on Lifetime. And stream on the Lifetime app or on demand. Check out mylifetime.com to find out what's airing because it might just be the case we talk about next. We used many sources in our research for today's episode. Among the most useful were the following. An article from the Brooklyn Daily Eagle entitled Strange Record of Mrs. May S. Pepper Medium, Broken Homes and Bitter Enemies in Her Former Haunts. An article from the Tacoma News Tribune entitled Only a Child's Kiss Bears Germs and an excerpt from a book entitled Confident Women by Tori Telfer. If you'd like to hear more about this story, we highly recommend you check out these sources. Crime of a Lifetime is produced by Tanner Robbins. Our associate producers are Hazel May and us, Quinlan Posner and Carrie Ipema. Our sound designer and editor is Arlen Ginsberg. Our senior producer is John Thrasher. McKamey Lynn is our supervising producer, and Jesse Cass is our executive producer. If you like what you hear on the show, please subscribe, rate, and review Crime of a Lifetime on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.